0: We'll look at Ephesians chapter 4 this morning as we look at the idea, walk worthy of the calling. Ephesians chapter 4, work walk worthy of the calling. As you can hear, my voice is not that great today. I apologize, it'll be what it is. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, stand in honor of the reading of God's word. If you do not mind, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing With one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people ...for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, ...until we all reach the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, ...and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there, ...by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead... Father, we ask you to be with us, and thank you so much for these words that teach us about the calling with which we have been called. We look to you to make us one church, one body, that united, Father, we would serve and become mature as we look today at those issues, help us to sort out our feelings and that which may overcome us, as the Bible says, the craftiness that is around us, and hone in on what you want us to hear today. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. What do you say when you said it all? How do you approach the final sermon of a morning, Sunday morning, in a church? Those final sermons, I think, at least from my standpoint, ought to be encouraging. They ought to be supportive. They ought to be helpful in easing people's minds about the future. I think God's people need to be reminded occasionally that we are in his hands and that nothing surprises God. Can I get an amen to that? The problem now is what's say in the final sermons. I have tonight, I have Wednesday, and then I'm through. Beginning sermons are tough. And they're tough because you don't know the people, and you're not exactly sure how to help and what to say. Ending sermons are tough, but it's the opposite. You know the people too well, and you have so much to say, but you don't have the time. And that's where I find myself today. Now I am to the last week of this ministry in the church, and through my mind was, what do I say when I've said it all? I have preached doctrine. I have preached evangelistic sermons. I have preached discipline sermon and discipleship messages. I have preached sermons that encouraged, that supported, and that warned the church. All those sermons have been preached. I have preached and called God's people to faith and to repentance. And all of that has been done through his word. So what do you say when you said it all? I thought about the final Sunday in services this morning specifically, and I think God led me in essence to a passage of Scripture uh, that will help us to remind ourselves that if we as a congregation focus on prayer and preaching and discipleship and service and missions, God will always bless us. When we do those things, he will give us his blessings. Now, the last Sunday here is upon me. During my last morning message, I felt strongly that God wanted me to challenge the church in two areas. One is unity and the other is service. Unity is also elusive, isn't it? In a transition. How do you stay unified when things are changing? I think with each member here in the church, there are always many options about what uh, the next pastor should be like or what they should do. What is it that You want, as a church, as a direction, to move on for Christ. So many opinions about not only the new pastor, but about a new direction. What should that be? I think God desires for his people to serve. I think when a pastor leaves, lay people, like yourselves, are asked to step up to the plate in a way that they may not normally. Now, I know Steve's going to be here next week. You'll have a new pastor. But he won't know everything that needs to be done right away, does he? I mean, he won't even know where the bathroom is. I didn't. The first Sunday I came, I thought it was funny. I came in the back door. first Sunday I sat down. I needed to go to the restroom. Asked this lady next to me, and she said, I don't know I'm visiting today. <laughs> so he's going to be in the same boat. So you'll have to step up to the plate and do something. You will have to stand in the gap for him until he gets to know you better and knows what you want to do and the direction that the church needs to go. That is what is left for the new pastor. So God led me to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 that we read here just a moment ago. And I think it deals directly with both issues, and that's why I think the sermon title, Walk Worthy of the Calling, is appropriate. If you look at this passage of scripture, especially verses chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's really all about the call up to this point. Uh, the call specifically in 1, 2, and 3 is to salvation. As you look at that, let me kind of summarize those first three chapters. God, it says, predestinated us, each person, to salvation, chapter 1. In chapter 2, it is told to us that that call came by grace. Further in chapter 2, it was, it was said that that call was for all people. Everyone has been called to that. And and lastly, we see that it is a mystery in chapter 3, and that mystery is revealed to us. No one knew what it was in the Old Testament. We come to know through Jesus that call to salvation and what it's all about. And so now in chapter 4, we see something different. The apostle exhorts the Ephesians to live lives worthy of that calling to salvation, But how does one live a life worthy of the call of salvation? Three things we're going to look at this morning. Number one, to walk worthy of the call requires unity. To walk worthy of the call requires unity, verses one through six. Let me share with you a quote that resonates to me that I heard a long time ago from Dwight L. Moody, great evangelist of generation gone by. I have never yet known the spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. What a powerful reminder. I think of the beauty and the necessity of the unity of a church in all its diversity. When I grew up, it was was pounded into us that it was our diversity that makes us strong. It's our diversity that makes us strong. But yet, somehow, in that diversity, we have to have unity. I'm going to meet people you'll never meet. You'll meet people I'll never meet. My attitude, my history, the way even sometimes I like music or you like music, you'll be drawn to different people. Diversity. But yet, together, we find a unity that we can reach a community. Verse 1 says, Therefore, The prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherein you're called. That word translated, therefore, uh, in your passage, maybe in King James and some other passages of Scripture, not NIV, marks a transition. And the transition in this passage of Scripture is chapters 1 through 3 from doctrine to duty, also from principle to practice, and from position to behavior. It moves us along in that one key word, therefore. Because of this doctrine of calling, one through three, therefore, you need to do something. You need to live a certain way. You need to act a certain way. Christians aren't to sit back and wait for unity to happen. What happens is you need to get involved and ensure that it happens. You're the ones who help unity come along by the way you deal with other people. Unity, though, is not about uniformity. It's not making people uh, think the same thing, look the same way, uh, act the same way, maybe even not believe the same things. We may not agree on the end times. Maybe you think that Jesus will come at the first and then something happens or he'll come in the middle or he'll come in the end. Uh, You know, you can argue about that what you believe about, but as long as you believe he's coming back to get you, isn't that the most important thing? The description of how it happens is not as important as that it happens, and that you believe his word when he says, when I leave, I will come again and receive you unto myself. But we won't always agree on things like that. Rather, I think it's our diversity that may help us achieve our common goal. And for us, I think, In the context of the church, that goal is this, to glorify God and to make his love known to the world. To glorify God and to make his love known to the world. And that love is what holds us together in unity, the Bible says. It ensures that it's going to happen. And since unity is the glue that holds everything together in the body of Christ, I think we need to look at it as what it is. It's a force. That enables us to work together. It helps us to serve together. It helps us to grow together. It's a power that enables us to overcome the challenges that we all face. And to withstand the trials and persevere. The Bible says you will have trials. You will have tribulation. But the unity that you and I share together helps us to endure that trials as we support one another. It's a strength that enables us to stand firm in our faith, to stand strong in our convictions, and to stand tall in our commitment to Christ. A number of years ago, I heard a story about a professor who wanted to demonstrate to his class the power of electromagnets. And so he had a wooden table, but underneath the table, he had set up a number of wires to create an electromagnet response when he put power to it. So he flipped the switch, and now there's a powerful electromagnet current underneath this wooden table. Before he flips the switch, though, he puts two pounds of nails on the table. And then he flips the switch, and all the nails zoop, go together. And then he begins to pull up those nails, like you maybe have seen some magnetic toys before, and he begins to form them in shapes. He creates little towers, and he makes mountains, and he makes a a kind of a square shape and an oval shape. And as long as the power of that electromagnet is underneath that table, he can pull those nails together. But the minute that he switches off the power, the nails fall separate in a pile. No longer are they drawn together. I think that reminds us that as long as the current of God, the Holy Spirit, through his love runs in us, we have unity. We're drawn together. And he can mold us into whatever church he wants us to be. But it's only as the power of God flows through us that that happens. So use that as a reminder of what you can do in the days ahead. Pull together through the power of love, and you will be able to accomplish what it is that God wants. I think it's interesting as you look at that passage of Scripture that we looked at, verses 1 through 6, that Paul talks about characteristics. He mentions a number of things. He mentions humility. Some may say lowliness, where you don't think of yourself higher than anybody else. He mentions the word gentleness or meekness. The Bible said that Jesus was a meek individual. Meekness is power under control. Gentleness is jo- not just, you know, I'm, I'm easy or I'm, uh, I'm okay. But it's a power that I hold in reserve. And I can give to you what you need when you need it. But until that happens, I hold it back. I am gentle in the way that I deal with you, even though I may have more strength. He also mentions the word patience. In the Greek, it means long-tempered. To be able to put up with something for a long period of time and not give in with that. I think of a long-distance runner who is able to run distances and not give up. He also uses the word tolerance. Or maybe it says in your translation, forbear unto love or something like that. It is that forbearance unto that love that those characteristics, humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, forbearance, that ensures that you will be unified. It's the love that does that. It is the love that helps us have unity. As I think of that, that word forbearance, maybe needs a little bit more description. To forbear literally means to bear up underneath something or to hold something back. You think like a dam that's holding back the water or a wall that's holding up a roof, something like that. We hold back our natural reactions when something happens to us. When someone maybe gets angry with us, we don't seek vengeance. We hold back our response. When we feel like we've been wronged, we don't harshly respond to someone. We hold that back. We forbear. In simple terms, forbear means, if I can put it in generic terms, you put up with a lot of stuff. That's just what it is. We have to put up with a lot from each other, don't we? Because we're all human. But forbearance unto love is what brings unity. If I get mad at every little thing that someone does, I'll constantly be mad. I can find something to be mad about. It's not hard. But forbearance in love helps us to be unified as a body. Uh, I think I, I remember a number of years ago, a vivid picture from uh, Pastor Tony DeConsnow. and uh, gave an illustration. He says... It, it, You can have union without unity. You can have union without unity, and he gave this example. Take a string and tie two cats' tails together and then throw them over a clothesline. You have union, but you don't have unity. I don't suggest you do that, but you get the picture. That sometimes, even though we're bound into something, we may not always agree or work together. It takes effort to make that happen. And it's not so much doing that ensures unity as it is being. I go back to those characteristics that Jesus gave. It's the characteristics, it's the being who Christ wants you to be that allows the doing to happen. You see the difference? I, I, I can say, all right, I'm mad at David. And so I'll shake David's hands, I'll smile at David, I'll fake it, right? Right? Maybe you can't tell. Maybe my wife can. Maybe you don't see the smile in my eyes, but you see a smile in my mouth, and that's okay. That's not forbearance to love. That's faking it. You see, it's the characteristics that underscore who we are that allows me to be able to forbear with David and really love him in spite of disagreeing with him. See the difference? You understand what it is? It's the characteristics that God wants, and why is that? Well, I I think it's the unity in our fellowship that in the New Testament and Acts was a portrait for the world, a picture for the world of the unity of God himself. If his people can love one another, then the outside world will discover what love is. They'll know us by our love. They'll see us in the unity. They'll recognize who we are. Therefore, unity, I think, has implications about evangelism. Second, number two, to walk worthy of the call requires serving. To walk worthy of the call requires serving. In every war, there are stories of courage, there are stories of bravery and acts of heroism that go beyond the norm of any human limitation. It seems sometimes the stories are unbelievable. I don't know if you know the name Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss was a soldier in World War II. Desmond Doss came from Lichburg, Virginia and because of his specific faith he did not feel he could carry a weapon into battle. And so he volunteered for the medic corps and he was sent overseas to Okinawa in 1941. They had to climb a steep hill to get to the enemy and as they did that, as you may know in a battle whoever holds the high ground has the more power and they were getting wiped out Desmond Doss crawled on his hands and knees and drug out 75 people who were wounded. And he got to the cliff and the ledge where he could lower them down, and he did it with a rope by himself. Now imagine that. To drag 75 people across a battlefield on your hands and knees on your belly at times, and then physically lower them down on a rope so that they could be out of the fray. There was a movie that was made of this, and it was called Hacksaw Ridge. And the quote that is in the movie and that he kept praying to the Lord was this, Lord, please help me get one more. What a great picture of service. That you and I are here to do what? to get one more for Christ, to serve one more person, to do something else. Not to sit and say, I've done enough, but to continue to see where I need to be of service. I think Doss's service saved a multitude of lives, there's no doubt about that, at least 75 people. God's not asking you to crawl across the battlefield in your, on your stomach this week, is he? I don't think so. But maybe he's calling you to do something, to write a letter, to pick up a phone and call somebody, to text someone and encourage them, maybe to make a meal and give to somebody who's in a dire strait, maybe to help someone to fix something that's broken in their house, to be of service to someone. Maybe it's just simply to set and understand and let them pour their heart out and be someone who can listen, to be of service. I think, is to walk worthy of the calling of God. God's provided in that same passage of Scripture, verses 7 through 12, spiritual gifts. We, we looked at those earlier as we read those out, those gifts that bring us together. I think the idea of unity and service over the next few weeks are going to be critical. Uh, they're critical in this between time, unity and service. It's the time of saying goodbye to one pastor and saying hello to another one. I'm always concerned, at least on in my human side, of the uncertainty of people in, in the period of change. Uncertainty in my leaving. Many of you have expressed uh, concern for us and what we will do, where we will go, and, and we appreciate that. We really do. There's some uncertainty there in all our lives, but I know God holds the future. I don't have an apprehension in leaving. I preached these last sermons, uh, and I think I have done it, at least in part, to begin to alleviate any fear in your mind <coughs> about us and about you, about what the future holds and about who holds the future. I think I'm here to challenge you to continue that faith in service, that unity in service in the weeks that comes. That aspect of service needs to be considered. Uh, you look at the passage of Scripture 7 through 12, and you discover that that service is based upon His Word. That service is based upon His Word. He's, it says that He equips us by that Word to works of service. Paul gave uh, lists of people who would help the church to do that. He talked about apostles, he talked about prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Those individuals were there to help the church to develop, equip itself for ministry. The word equip is used here, is kata teresmas. And what that word means is the idea of making something fit, to make something fit. It is to prepare it for its intended service or purpose, to make it qualified for a task. You can see this word used in Matthew 24, verse 1, when it describes James and John's mending their nets. That's the word that's used there. It makes them usable for a purpose. I love to work with wood. I love woodworking. There's a maxim in woodworking. It's this. Measure twice, cut once. Why is that? Because you want it to fit. You want it to be what it needs to be. So you don't have extra work and you don't have waste. And that's what the word means in Ephesians 4. It's used to describe the word of God equipping us and making us fit for the kingdom of God. I think through the word, we are prepared. Through the word, we are trained. Through the word, we are made qualified for the works of God that he has prepared for us, that he's destined for us to be a part of. I think The word is our spiritual toolkit. It has all the tools we need to be equipped, to be fit for service, and to live up to our God-given potential. There's another passage of Scripture where that word is used, and it's in 2 Timothy 3.16 where we read these words. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped, that's the word again, Into every good work. Here again, I think we see the Word of God described as a means by which we're equipped. I like those four things that's mentioned in Timothy as you look at it and what the Word does. What the Word does is it teaches, it rebukes, it corrects, and it trains. Think of it like this there's a road on which we're on, okay? Either this way or that way, however you want to think of the road. Uh, You're on a road. And that for us is teaching, doctrine. We learn something. We learn about the grace of God. But let's say we make a mistake and we get off the road. Now we are rebuked. Hey, don't get off the road. You need to get back to that teaching of the grace of God. You've gotten off the road. Here's how you got off the road. Paul would describe that and rebuke people to get back on the road. And then you have that next word, correcting, which means how to get back on the road. Okay, I got off the road. How do I get back on it? I have the word to correct me. And then I have that last word, train, that helps me to stay on the road. The Word of God does that in my life. It helps me to see how to be equipped, how to be fit for service. Thirdly, to walk worthy of the call leads to maturity. And those are verses 13 through 16. Spiritual maturity leads, I think, to spiritual stability. I've seen some churches that were never not spiritually uh, mature, and they always had infighting. They always had problems. Um, I was uh, listening to a pastor friend of mine one time, and somebody came up to him and tapped his watch, and he says, Pastor, it's been 18 months, and about time you go. That's how long they expected somebody to be there. They turned over now. I can't imagine that kind of ministry where you just think, you know, we'll get the best out of you, squeeze out what we want, and then find somebody else to do the job. But there are some churches that are like that. There's some widow-maker churches is what we call them. That you go into that church, and it's always firing a pastor, always having some problems, always being immature. But spiritual maturity leads to stability, spiritual Stability. I think it's something this church needs desperately. It needed it when we were in the interim period, and it's going to need stability in the weeks and the months to come. Maturity is about developing that Christ-like character again. Remember the characteristics that he mentioned? There are other characteristics that are mentioned by Paul when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Remember those? We look at the fruits of the Spirit, and we think of love, joy, peace, patience. We think of kindness, goodness, faithfulness. We think of gentleness and self-control. All those characteristics, that character that's within us, leads us to spiritual maturity and therefore stability. I think it's about responding to the situations around us with that stability, that maturity, and with the love of Christ. That I'm able, because I'm spiritually mature, to see the situations that might normally make me upset, but to go, you know, I understand how somebody could say that. I understand how somebody could feel that way. How can I help them see my point of view? And I use that spiritual maturity to bring stability through the love of Christ, just like Jesus did. I mean, it's just growing in wisdom. It's learning how to face situations. It's understanding. It's discerning what is around you, through the word of God and through the love of Christ I think in the context of our church I think maturity involves contributing to the growth and edification of each other if I'm going to be mature I'm not going to worry so much about me as I'm going to worry about you I want you to grow I want you to develop let me be mercenary uh, in a way Uh, if I'm mercenary about coming here each week I come here and I'm concerned about getting paid if they don't pay me I won't come that's mercenary that's caring about me and not about you I'm not so much concerned about what I'm paid many of you know that we've done that through many committee meetings but what I am concerned about is you growing in the Lord you developing I'm more concerned about you than I am about me that I believe is spiritual maturity I I think it happens through a process, and it happens when we are not spectators in that process. If I just sit and soak, if I just sit and critique, you know, complain about things or people, then I'm not really adding to the process. I'm not building people up. I'm not encouraging people. I'm not spurring them toward maturity themselves. It's all about growing in the knowledge of him, spending time in the word of God, spending time in prayer. It's about trusting God more. It's about depending on him in every situation and surrendering my will, what I want, to what he wants. And what does he want? He wants me to help you. What does he want from you? He wants you to help others. He wants you to be the doorway, as it is, into him. Now, he is the door, but you lead people to him, don't you? You, by your lifestyle, your characteristics, the way you live, the way you engage, the way you love, draw people to Christ. They will know that you're different because of the way that you act. I think, lastly, maturity is about endurance. It's about standing firm. I live in a world that... Continually attacks what I believe. You do too. But I'm going to stand firm in the midst of that world and I'm going to proclaim the truth of God, even if it offends my family or my friends or anyone else. I can't do anything less. I need to believe the Word of God and stand firm. In doing that, I can face the trials that will inevitably come my way. The tribulations will come. Some will come because I stand up for Christ. Some will come, as we've studied before, because I make mistakes, and you make mistakes. We create some of our own problems, if we would admit that. But some are going to come because we are standing on the Word of God and proclaiming who Christ is, and Him saying, this is wrong. You are wrong. Here's how you need to change. Now, not, I'm not ugly about it. I'm not angry about it. But I am open and truthful about it. I speak the words of truth in love. And in that, I call people to Christ. I remind them that he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He'll be with us in everything. So as been men mentioned by me and others in my quote, I want to remind you in the weeks ahead, I will not always be your pastor, but I always will be your brother in Christ and your friend. So as we wrap up this last sunday morning together i want to re- want you to remember that we are all part of a beautiful body of christ and that as being a part we need unity we need service and we need maturity in the days ahead we need to be united to strive to build up one another to speak the truth in love to grow to maturity because we are better together than we are apart story about two brothers they had adjoining farms and for 40 years they had worked together they'd shared uh, equipment when it was needed they shared the labor of work with each other's farm when was needed But then something happened, some some misunderstanding that started out small and then developed into a major difference between them, so much so that it exploded into exhibiting bitter words with each other, followed by weeks of silence where they wouldn't even speak or go to the other farm with the other. So you had an elder brother and a younger brother. One morning, a carpenter came to the door, knocked on the door of the eldest brother's house, and said, hey, I'm, I'm traveling through. I'm a carpenter, and uh, I can do a lot of handyman stuff. you have anything here on the farm that needs done? I've got a few days. I'd like to fill them with some work. And, and uh, the elder brother said, yeah, as a matter of fact, there is. He said, "I want you you come walk with me? He said, I want you to look at this. He said, my brother wanted to get more water on his land, and he, and he diverted that water, and now he's made this. It's almost like a little river. It's bigger than a creek across our property, and I think he did it just to aggravate me. I, I I want something here uh, that that changes the way this look. I, I don't want to I don't want to stand here and look across at him. You think you can help me? Carpenter said, "Yeah, I, I think uh, I think I can do that. I, I think I can build something you like." He said, well, "What do we need?" So they went into town, got all the material that the carpenter thought he would need, and he came back. And so they dropped off the material and. Um, The farmer said, okay, you got everything you need? Yep, right. I'm going to go on and deal with the farm and the rest of the farm, and I'll come back later in the day. Perfect. And so the carpenter worked all day. He worked hard measuring, sawing, nailing. And so at sunset, the elder brother came home. When he came home, his eyes popped out and his jaw dropped. is what he saw. It wasn't anything what he imagined would be there. I think in his mind, he was imagining a wall or something where he didn't have to look at his brother, some screen or whatever. But what the carpenter had built was a bridge, a bridge from one piece of property to the other. And on the other end of the bridge, the elder brother saw his younger brother walking across with a smile on his face and his arms open. And here's what he said. You are really kind. You are really humble, my brother. After all I have done, And after all I have said, you still show that blood is stronger in our relations and can never be broken. I am truly sorry for all the things I have done, and I want to reestablish our relationship. And so they hugged, and they cried on each other, and they forgave each other. The carpenter was lifting up his tools to put them on his shoulder, and the elder brother said, No, I need you to stop. I, I have more work that you can do. You need to stay. The carpenter said, I'd love to stay. But I have more bridges to build. Isn't that who we are? In Christ, Christ the carpenter presents you with a toolkit, the Word of God, so that you can be bridge builders to others and bring unity. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask you to help us to be. Bridge builders, to be those who help the unity of the church through service to bring maturity to those around us and stability because of that. We pray for Steve as he comes next week that you would help him to discover these people and the goodness that is within them. Help him to discover how he can fit in and help them to be equipped for the ministry. Use him as a pastor teacher to help them discover the word of God and how to be like Jesus. That's what you want from us, to be more like him. So open our hearts, drill down deep within us, cast out those things that are not of you so that we may resemble you more and that that unity in love will draw people. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. What number will we be singing today? 389. 389 as you stand and sing.